0: This is Query Diagnosis. I'm your host, Zarya. My pronouns are she, her,
1: hers. I'm Shreetha, and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. Our guest today is Samantha Wilder, a fourth-year medical student at the Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine. She's currently applying to a urology residency. Hi, Sammy. Could you please introduce yourself with your pronouns? Hi, I'm
2: Sammy, and my pronouns are she, her, hers.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about your involvement
0: um, with the LGBTQ community on your medical campus?
2: Of course. Um, So I actually uh, came out um, as queer or uh, pansexual um, during my first year of medical school uh, and in kind of looking for um, a community to uh, associate myself with and to kind of find people who were like minded and, you know, going through similar struggles as I was. I did notice that there was um, a lack of a student organization on campus um, as well as sort of student led initiatives. for addressing uh, LGBT healthcare disparities um, and uh, community issues. Um, and so that was uh, a struggle for me initially. Um, and uh, I kind of looked to our sister campus in Rochester um, who had already had an established uh, community since um, I was part of the uh, second uh, official fourth year, uh, four year uh, class at Mayo Camp- uh, Clinic in Arizona. Um. So there was not, we were still kind of a baby community um, uh, in general as a medical school. Um, and so I kind of looked towards, towards them to see what they had established. Um, and they were, and they had uh, uh, what they called the LGBT uh, in Medicine um, student organization, which was both an organization uh, to uh, provide a community um, for uh, LGBT identifying students and allies um, as well as to sort of supplement the curriculum in some ways um, regarding LGBT health uh, issues um, by uh, bringing in speakers um, and people who were uh, notable in that field uh, to kind of teach about these topics. And so I thought that that would be you know a very um, important thing to have addressed on the Arizona campus as well. And so I kind of started the process of um, creating that group.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about the name of your group and what specific
2: events you hold on campus? So um, it's called the LGBTI in Medicine Interest Group. Um, It's a student organization. It's faculty-led, faculty uh, faculty and student-led, excuse me. Um, And the uh, events that we hold on campus, we have uh, social events um, for the uh, uh, queer community and for queer identifying students as an opportunity to kind of connect um, and grow as a community. We have um, uh, more educational events where we bring in speakers um, to kind of discuss pertinent topics in LGBT healthcare. Um, And then we have um, just sort of any, uh, we've had sort of faculty student mixers um, to kind of connect uh, queer identifying students with uh, queer faculty um to kind of assist in that process of um applying to residency and what to expect being you know out in medicine um and provide mentorship uh as needed
1: so you kind of mentioned like uh the role that like faculty has played in the organization and like we've had the opportunity to talk to like quite a few medical students and how it seems that like students tend to take the lead on like certain initiatives. so can you talk about the ways in which faculty have helped and how they've kind of responded?
2: So the involvement of faculty and of the administration has actually been something that has really surprised me I mean, in terms of how open and how encouraging and um, motivated that uh, they are to sort of addressing these issues um, that have existed on campus and then also in the broader community. Uh, I, one example of that is sort of um, the administration reached out to myself and then the um, members of the uh, interest group in Rochester and uh, uh, sort of requested that we create this sort of working group with them under the Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion um, to address the issues on this sort of systemic level at, at the school. Um, And that we would be working directly with our faculty advisors and uh, different branches of the medical school administration to address these challenges. And so, I mean, just from the perspective of a student who was struggling to, you know, find a community and to figure out ways to address these issues that I was experiencing, it was really encouraging and really, you know, um, motivating that the administration was taking such an active role in addressing these problems. Um, and so having that opportunity to work directly with, uh, admissions and curriculum development and faculty affairs and student affairs has been really, really great and really promising and encouraging.
0: I think one of the things that I enjoyed most about attending the, um, Mayo Clinic information session was that as soon as I asked a question about, like, LGBTQ plus resources on campus, five medical I mean maybe not five medical students, but multiple medical students responded in the chat and they were like, We have a barbecue and we have many events and it was interesting because I've asked the same I always try to ask questions about the resources available to students who are applying because I think that personally as somebody who wants to be comfortable in their surroundings and be able to talk about their community, um, I definitely would want to go to a school that fosters that environment. So it was Really nice to see the response of, I guess, medical students. And I mean, they connected me with you, which is great. Um, so I just really appreciate your, the fact that you started a whole organization after that you modeled after Rochester. One of the things that stood out to me in our preliminary conversation was, um, you said that LGBTQ plus students did not necessarily have access to LGBTQ plus, um, inclusive providers. Could
3: you speak
2: a little bit more to that? Uh, yeah, so that's actually one of the issues that we're working to address um, through this uh, working group under the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Um, the, the main issue has just been that the structure in which the school has um, provided healthcare to students um, and differs between the two campuses. Um, so in Rochester, the students uh, receive healthcare through the um, Occupational Health Office, um, whereas we get um, in Arizona, we do get assigned to primary care providers uh, through family practice. Um, and so it is less of an issue on the Arizona campus specifically, but still sort of a broad issue um, where uh, students in Rochester um, through occupational health may not be connecting with providers who understand or who have really experienced um, LGBT specific health care issues. And so the there have been some circumstances in which students have received uh, sort of the opposite of you know, queer affirming care. Um, and so we are working directly uh, with the school to address, address that problem and to um, see if we can create a, a system in which students perhaps uh, receive care through the residence clinic or through uh, a different um, avenue in which the providers that they, they see are more knowledgeable and more comfortable Um, treating issues that pertain to lgbt students
1: um how how would you say like i guess the timeline has been for like implementing change i know it's kind of like like a newer like program so it's like has it been super flexible or has it like has it been more of like a slow burn
2: i feel like it's been a little bit of of both, like a lot of things, happened all at once, very quickly. Um, so I started this interest group, and I started working with my colleagues in Rochester. And then the school reached out to me and to my colleagues, and wanted to start this working group. Um, and people were reaching out, you know, with ideas, and um, and there was a lot of momentum early on. And then as the actual process of change uh, and the work needed to to create that change sort of um, continued, things slow down a little, as they do naturally, Um, change doesn't occur overnight. And when you're talking about, you know, an institution-wide change, uh, that's also going to be, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of stakeholders within that. And so navigating that has been really interesting um, from my perspective, just because it's not something I'd ever really done before, um, working with an institution to kind of create system level change. Um, And... I think in one of the lessons that I kind of learned in that um, is, you know, we came out initially when we had this opportunity to meet with the administration early on. We didn't know if this was going to be a long term thing or if this was going to be our one chance to kind of tell them what our thoughts were and what we thought needed to change on campus. So we came out kind of guns a blazing and just with everything we had, a whole document of like all of the changes, probably a little aggressive um, in retrospect. (laughs) Um, and, and definitely was not well uh, taken by everyone, but most people were pretty supportive. Um, some people thought it might be a little too aggressive <laughs> on our part, um, but then as it sort of morphed into this long-term thing um, that will continue even as I graduate and um, as my colleagues graduate, um, it has definitely taken on a more, a more slow burn kind of uh, feeling.
0: I just want to say that oftentimes for, I think since perhaps ninth grade, whenever there's something that needs to be addressed within a student body, even if there's a student government, um, I'm the one who usually writes a petition in a kind manner um, that's not disrespectful. But I think it's funny because you're using the word, oh, it might have been a little aggressive, but I will never admit. Well, actually, I think everything I do is a little bit aggressive, um, but not in an intentional way. Um Shrita can definitely tell you that I don't give up when something needs to be done. Uh, even recently they gave us it was a very minor thing, but they gave us an assignment due um during our fall break. And technically due to uh according to SUNY um policy, you cannot give a student an assignment during fall break. So most professors don't I mean most professors don't give you assignments, but it was like a forty page lab report due um during fall break and so I ended up becoming the point person for that. So it's nice to know that the I mean, you mentioned earlier that the faculty has been very responsive um, to your initiatives, which I think is great. What do you see happening? Um, do you have a leadership team to kind of continue the program or the initiatives you started after graduation?
2: Yes. so the, so the I guess the two separate um, groups um, are the the working group under the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and then the student organization. And they overlap significantly in terms of who's involved. Um, But uh, in terms of continuation of those after I graduate, so the working group has several um, student members from both campuses as well as several faculty members uh, who have committed to continuing um, being involved in in this role. Um, And then um, I recruited additional Arizona uh, membership um, to kind of continue the Arizona representation um after I graduate. Uh and then in similarly with the interest group, I've uh recruited um uh leadership to uh sort of facilitate that transition as I graduate as well. And they've becoming increasingly more involved in taking initiative and leadership on things um as I sort of phase out with residency.
1: I've always so like at the beginning of the interview you were saying like you know, you were coming out and you were kind of looking for a community. Did you ever expect to get, like, so involved in this way where you're now, like, working with the administration? Was that thought kind of always in the back of your head or was this just, like, the way that it unfolded?
2: Uh, not at all. <laughs> um, I was uncomfortable as like a, a baby gay, um, kind of being the face of queer students on campus. I didn't feel like I really deserved that um, in whatever however that means. Um I I guess my limited experience and um just my own uh, insecurities in that kind of made so it kind of uh, took a while for me to realize that I was probably the person who was going to have to do it, um, and at least at that time, uh, and so I would have started it earlier, honestly, <laughs> um, if I, I hadn't had those reservations. Uh, but yeah, I did not expect it to be kind of this this thing that I would wor- be working with the administration and that I'd be working with you know colleagues and faculty in Rochester. Um, I I didn't expect that at all, and I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Uh, it's been it's been great. So as
0: an admissions committee member, um, we know that you also have a large say. Um, so how have you sought to increase the visibility of um, incoming classes in terms of the LGBTQ community?
2: So in, in my initial reason for even joining the admissions committee was um, as a to be an LGBT member of the committee um, to kind of increase uh, that perspective um, during conversations about students, um, applying students and. Ensure that I mean, there's only so much that I can do as an individual, but uh, as best as I can, you know, provide that representation, um, along with another member of our uh, LGBT working group um, from the Rochester campus who joined. And the, in terms of my role, I, um, I'm an interviewer, uh, and then I, uh, as an interviewer, joined the, um, the admissions committee meetings to kind of discuss applicants and then vote on applicants and, and rank them accordingly. Um, and so how I've kind of been sort of attempting to provide that, uh, that perspective and to increase the visibility of these students has really been to, one, challenge um, any questions that come up about, you know, queer students and their, um, how their identity sort of uh, relates to their desire to practice medicine um, and to definitely uh, highlight Strength, the strengths of that uh, within their application. Um, I think it's been kind of, there haven't been a lot of opportunities to do that in a direct sort of way, um, or a way to kind of uh, explicitly highlight queer applicants as queer applicants. Um, but I think uh, bringing um, attention to how uh, students' identities play a role in their desire to pursue healthcare, um, and and how that affects their abilities to engage in certain activities that might be considered, you know, standard for pre-med applications um, and the the types of discrimination that students might even be facing um, and the, the minority stress that, that comes along with being underrepresented in medicine. Um, uh, I've definitely tried to include that in the conversation as much as I possibly can.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your residency program and what um, specialty you're applying to?
2: So I'm um, currently applying to urology. Um, I've applied pretty broadly uh, in terms of the programs, um, as one does when they apply to urology. It's a pretty competitive specialty, um, and um, I'm 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 very excited <laughs> to be you know in that process and um, uh, with so applications have already been submitted. Um, interviews just came out for urology programs, and so we're kind of headed into that interview space um, now.
1: I do remember when I was um, uh, when I was applying to undergrad and then I recently applied because I just started grad school like one of the you know I've struggled with my mental health as a lot of people have and I was like do I write about this and it's such like a part of who I am and how I like arrived to the decision to like how I you know that I wanted to go to grad school and all of that. And it is sort of, it's this very fine balance where you're, like, sharing yourself, but also, like, I remember showing someone my essay, and they were like, you don't want them to think that, like, something is going to happen to you, right? Like, that's the big thing if you, like, talk about if you have, like, mental health um struggles. So it is this sort of really interesting balance, but I do think that... um Maybe like medicine in specific, but also just like academia in general is coming around to this idea that like our identity like brings so much to the table. And it's sort of like you being part of the admissions community. Are you working with like the office of like DEI? Like so much of it is that you guys like have this perspective that like can implement systemic change. And like even for me, I'm in economics, and economics for a very long time has been a bunch of like. Old white men primarily working in like micro, um, economics and like sort of being able to say, well, I have this other perspective and these other interests that can also help and like cause change. More recently, when I've gone
0: to information sessions for medical schools, I've been trying to ask about, um, different LGBTQ plus resources. And I noticed that sometimes people will direct to, um, I guess race and that as diversity, which is understandable. Um, and I was trying to understand why, when I ask about LGBTQ plus resources, do people talk about race more than, I guess, LGBTQ plus focused um, initiatives? And so I asked a medical student this recently, and they had said, well, people like to speak to the things that they know. And um, Sammy, I think they even mentioned this, that people will you know, they're, they're, not everyone is comfortable talking about this community because not everyone knows what to say and what is appropriate. And, you know, you don't want to speak on something you're not knowledgeable about. So I guess that one of my questions for you is, have you shared your identity with residency programs?
2: Yes. So I I made the, the decision to come out in my personal statement um, in my residency application after kind of uh, discussing it with my mentors and with um, different uh, people who have been involved in the residency application process. Um, and I decided that it was something that was, one, important to me and my identity and something that I felt was very relevant uh, to, you know, what I wanted to to share with uh, prospective programs. Um, it informed a lot of the work that I've done in medical school, and I wanted to be able to highlight that um, as a strength in my application. And then also just as a general screening tool um, to If there are programs that wouldn't be upset by that or would be bothered by that in whatever way, I don't want to go to those programs. And it kind of works as a a very early on screening tool. They take a look at my application. They see in my personal statement uh, that I've come out and they can toss my application aside if they are bothered by it in any way. Um, And so that was the decision that I made. Um, And then I, in terms of interviews, uh, have been, um, I've only gone on a couple, uh, but have been very open. about that aspect of my identity, um, and the experiences that I have had, uh, and have really been trying to showcase it as a strength and uh, an asset to, uh, whatever program that I'm applying to.
0: What advice might you have for someone who's, um, deciding whether or not they want to be out to, um, an admissions committee, either for medical school or for residency?
2: I think... The advice, the general advice that I have to anybody applying to to medical school, or even—I mean, I'm not in residency yet, so maybe I'm not equipped to to give advice to that. But um, certainly for pre-med students, is to be as open as you are comfortable with, and as comfortable as you are discussing it. Um, in because if you put it in your application, it's it is fair game to to discuss um, at an interview. And so I don't think, at least from the perspective of the work that I have done on the admissions committee, that it is ever viewed as a, a negative um, it can only be viewed as a positive and it especially in how you frame it and if you can kind of use it to inform why you're interested in pursuing medicine and why you're interested in working with the communities that you want to work with um, and how that's strengthened you as an applicant um, as, as frustrating as it can be sometimes to kind of use these aspects of our identity to as like selling points uh, for admissions committees, but being able to do that is certainly going to boost your application in, in a way. It can only help in in my experience. And I can't speak for every every medical program. And I'm sure that there are some that are a little more traditional in their ways. Um, but I think that anything that sets you apart and makes you stronger and makes you better equipped to um, work with different communities, um, whether it's your own community or other communities um, is an asset. And you should, you should, if you are comfortable, use that uh, in your application.
0: I think one thing that um, I found as I was kind of searching up whether or not to be out for your personal statement is um, the question of, do you talk about your personal experiences versus how do I relate this to a patient experience I've had? Have you kind of found a balance between that or you kind of chose to stick to one
2: or the other? I guess I'll talk about this in two kind of ways. I'll talk about this as an applicant currently um, to residency. My goal was to showcase it through um, the the work that I've done in the school and then also patient experiences that I've had, because I felt that nobody would be able to sort of challenge that, um, that it was a strength if I was solely portraying it as something that has only helped me uh, in, my, in my medical career. Um, and I chose to stay a little bit further away from personal experience, um, open to discussing it if it comes up in interviews, but not something that I included in my personal statement. Um, and that's also just in terms of, you're very limited in terms of how much space you have to discuss things that are important to you in your personal state- statement. And so that was only one, one part of me that I wanted to share. There are several parts of me that i wanted to also include in my personal statement and so it was also just a choice about you know what to take out Um, and but as a as someone who you know reviews applications and interviews applicants i will say that it is certainly a a stronger personal statement whenever you're able to tie it back to patient care and to patient um, uh, meaningful clinical experiences that you've had um and It doesn't necessarily always have to be in this direct and then I had this one queer patient who did x y and z and taught me all of these things it doesn't necessarily have to be that direct Um, it can just be a lesson that you've learned that you will uh, tie back to um, how you uh, will treat patients in the future or things that are important to you in uh, treating patients Um, and so I think that it's always it's just a stronger point whenever you're able to tie it back to, to medicine and why you want to practice medicine.
1: So, speaking of why you want to practice in medicine, can you
2: talk about how you got interested in urology? So, I was always um, very interested in surgery uh, coming into medical school. Um, most of my pre medical shadowing experiences had been in surgery, and I really liked being in the OR. Um, but I wasn't as much of a big fan of the culture of surgery, um, I I found that that was sort of something that was pushing me very far away from that. I wanted more um, meaningful and long-term relationships with my patients. Um, not that the surgical relationships aren't meaningful, but long-term I wanted uh, for sure. Um, and I didn't really know about urology. It's kind of this hidden gem um, in medicine, although less so now. Um, But as more and more people are applying to urology. um, But I kind of accidentally uh, did a a week um, in my second year um, on the urology service. And I felt like I had found all of the things that I was missing when I had been thinking about general surgery or other surgical specialties. I found that the the ability to sort of have those long term relationships um, with your patients um, is definitely there urology is clinical and procedural in nature so you end up establishing those long-term connections um i found that just the culture was very laid back um there was a lot of humor and fun and uh, and general happiness <laughs> that urologists seem to to have uh which is something that i definitely wanted um and definitely you know clicked more with my personality Uh, And so kind of ever since that week, I have just been all gung-ho urology all the time. Um, I think it's a fantastic specialty. I think there's a lot of really great opportunities for innovation, for um, improving health disparities, for uh, even queer affirming care and and gender affirming care. um, And I'm just really excited to be a part of all of that.
0: So I know that as part of um, gender affirming surgery, there are urologists involved. So even if you're not involved in the surgical aspect, would you still be able to get involved otherwise in gender affirming surgeries or gender affirming care?
2: Um so typically I, um in my experience at least, um the way that I have seen gender affirming care play out has been very multidisciplinary. You've got your endocrinologists, your primary care providers, your psychiatrists, your urologists, your plastic surgeons. I'm sure there are more. <laughs> and so um there are opportunities within that to um, that multidisciplinary team-based model to really um, work with patients and achieve whatever their goals are, um, because everybody's goals are different when it comes to gender-affirming care. Um, And I think that perhaps in a a setting in which you don't necessarily have that uh, multidisciplinary approach, um, so maybe in a community-based practice, um, I think there's a lot of opportunities For urologists to uh, provide hormonal treatments, um, to manage that uh, with their patients, and to manage long term care um, post uh, surgical uh, procedures, um, things that come up within that. And so you don't necessarily have to be involved in the specific surgeries um, that you may or may not be comfortable with, depending on your level of um, experience with those surgeries, because it is very specific and not every program is going to have. Every, not every training program is going to have that as part of their um, their repertoire of, of of surgeries that they offer, um, and so. Uh, but there are there are long term management issues that um, you know every urologist I believe should be knowledgeable about and be able to manage um, in their patient population.
0: Taking it back to your discussion of the admissions process. What improvements would you like to see to kind of be more accommodating of LGBTQ plus applicants, if anything?
2: Well, I think one of the biggest issues with the application process for LGBT applicants is that as far as I know, the AAMC still doesn't consider LGBT students as an underrepresented minority in medicine. Um, And that's. I think that that one leads to a lack of data that exists in terms of how many. Students are applying as LGBT applicants, um, as well as the actual representation of LGBT providers in medicine, which I think is really important. Um, and I think it really doesn't address the fact that queer people have long been discouraged from applying to fields in medicine in both overt and covert ways. I mean, it's not that long ago that homosexuality was a DSM diagnosis um, and so I think that there's a lot of work on that side that needs to be done to sort of improve how we view applicants um, as a whole and uh, with all the various parts of their identities um, as they apply to medicine. I think in general, um, and this is true of I think every provider in medicine, um, but even and maybe especially in education, uh, more robust training on um, the use of pronouns and um, and even just language that students might use um, and what language that you should use in return. <laughs> um, and just being comfortable discussing these topics, I think, is something that's lacking um, quite a bit in the medical field currently. Um, I don't think that a lot of providers are comfortable talking about these topics. Um, and I think that then that translates over into the admissions process because typically speaking, doctors are the ones who are involved in the admissions process. Um, And so I think just general increasing, um, and I think that will come as uh, there is more representation in medicine and as uh, students and providers are more comfortable sharing that part of their identity throughout their training and throughout their practice. um, I think that 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 comfort with the uh with these discussions will happen um but i think that's probably one of the more challenging aspects currently
1: do you think like the the reluctance this might be a question where like the answer isn't a little bit do you think the reluctance to have those discussions comes from like um like a place of like fear where they like don't want to mess up or say something wrong or is it just from like sort of like reticence to change
2: I mean, in my experience, um, as being part of the uh, the working group under the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, um, when we've sort of talked about um, on the faculty affairs side of things, um, sort of the the comfort level of having these discussions, it has really been the first thing that you said: the, the the fear of messing up, the fear of saying the wrong thing, the fear of offending someone or pushing someone further away. That really is. Driving people away from maybe even just introducing themselves with their pronouns—they're they're not comfortable with it, and so they—they're they, afraid they might mess up. They're afraid that they might offend someone, and so I—I I really don't see it as much as this sort of resistance to change. Um, I think most people are really well-meaning and do want to do right by their their colleagues, their trainees, their patients. It's just this this lack of comfort that that's really. Um, driving them away from it.
0: I actually, so you mentioned earlier that um, the AAMC does not recognize the LGBTQ plus community as um, underrepresented. So there's one program that I'm applying to for the summer since I'll have a gap year. um, And it says that they only want minority underrepresented students to apply. So I kind of thought that LGBTQ plus would kind of fall under that. Um, So now I'm kind of, I'm actually a little bit Surprised that the AMC doesn't consider it to be underrepresented, um, mostly because in one interview that we did earlier, somebody mentioned that there were four medical students in their student body who were career identifying and, um, there were only four hours of LGBTQ plus healthcare in the curriculum. So it's four hours for those four students. That was a joke. Um, so I think that's, I definitely wonder why that's something that they haven't Kind of addressed or if it's never come up
2: before? I think each program views it differently because I've seen um, when I was applying for away rotations um, earlier this year, um, I definitely saw there were programs that were um, and scholarships dedicated towards underrepresented in medicine um, minority groups. And in their list, sometimes they would have LGBT, sometimes they wouldn't. So it was kind of, I think it is program dependent, but I think broadly as a and I hope I'm not wrong on that. Um, but the last time I checked, uh, the AMC didn't didn't view um, that as a as one of the underrepresented minorities in medicine. Um, and I think that it's unfortunate. Um, and I don't know why. And I wonder if it's a numbers thing, um, or maybe um, I think we had talked about this a little before of kind of lumping, you know, racial and uh, uh, gender and sexual minorities kind of all together in You know, viewing it as everyone who needs they all need the same sort of resources. So maybe, um, maybe that's part of it. I'm not entirely sure why. I don't know the history of that. Um, but it's certainly a a problem. I mean, there there we are a minority group in medicine. Um, and there has been that discrimination that has existed for a long time in medicine and that has discouraged People from who are queer uh, from coming out and discussing that and disclosing that in their work environments and then also discouraging people from even trying to get into the field in the first place um, so I think that if it's not something that they are working on changing it should definitely uh, be on their list
0: I think we should both send emails to them <laughs> <laughs> turning back the time a little bit and um, then thinking of your pre-med self what would you tell them in terms of advice
2: I think the biggest fear that I had on sort of the application trail was I wanted to be liked by everyone. I wanted to be what everybody wanted. Um, And I was afraid that if I showed any uh, like too much conviction about a certain topic or not enough conviction, or if I only highlighted, you know, the very, the very pretty parts of my application and not necessarily the more messy parts of my experience um, that I would be. I just didn't want to exclude anyone from um, considering me as an applicant, and I think that that and it all worked out in the in the end. But I I do think it it weakened my application um, quite a bit um, because I think that the interesting parts of a person and what makes them unique and what makes them strong are often the things that are not as pretty to people, (laughs) and it's all it is all in how you talk about it, uh, but. But I do think that those are some of the biggest strengths are the things that we've struggled with. Um, And so I probably would tell myself to embrace those things um, and to um, use them as as tools rather than as things I was afraid of talking about. Or as um, I I think that um, we had talked a little bit about mental health being sort of this struggle and whether or not to disclose that. You know, certainly that's something that I've struggled with and definitely tried to to hide uh, from my application in any real way. Um, and I think that I would just tell myself to embrace those things and to be able to talk about them and not necessarily try to fit the mold of what everyone, what I thought everyone wanted me to be. Um, and then therefore come out as a maybe a weaker looking applicant because I wasn't really anything. <laughs> um, uh, I think I would probably try to to tell my story in a more genuine way.
0: Do you think that you're staying true to yourself, even in these residency applications? If you were to take that, are you taking that advice right now?
2: I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> I think that it's really difficult balance. It really is to to balance sort of the things that you want to highlight to a program as reasons why they should take you, as well as the things that are honestly just true about you and are things that you've struggled with, and I think balancing those in a way that ends up making you an appealing applicant can be really difficult, um, especially if there's things that you're still struggling with um, that you haven't necessarily resolved um, and so you can't just say, and now I'm you know so much stronger because of it um, so because you're still you're still working through it and so I am doing the best that I that I can to sort of um, highlight those those parts of me um, in a way that hopefully will not be detrimental to my future career. Um, So that's that's kind of the stance that I'm taking. And so definitely framing it through work I've done, patient encounters I've had, how it's made me a better doctor um, is is the, the lens that I'm trying to.
1: Yeah, I think now, especially when I look back on like applying to college, it is a very strange phenomenon to like, ask a 17 year old to be like, who are you? And what do you want to do with your life and present yourself in this like, very like neatly packaged thing. And I'm like, no one knows what they're doing when they're 17. Um, I barely know what I'm doing now. Like, and it's been a couple years. So yeah, I and I think you touched on this before. But like, the idea of you know, taking parts of your identity and taking things that you've dealt with and your experiences and almost, in a way, kind of having to advertise yourself, essentially, right? Because that is, and there's always going to be, like, like as much stuff as we work through, there's always going to be some inherent dissonance in, like, trying to advertise yourself. It's just a strange thing, so.
2: Yeah, I remember um, when I was applying to medical school, that being kind of that dissonance that you just described being really frustrating to me. I felt like all of these things that I cared about were cheapened by this um, process of me trying to just advertise myself constantly and and always use them as a way to get into medical school and not just as a thing that was genuine and true on its own. Um, So that was something I struggled with uh, during the application process quite a bit. I think I'm a little more used to it now, so it doesn't bother me as much um but but maybe it should I don't know (laughs) um uh and I think and what you said about um sort of having to package yourself even at 17 when you're applying to colleges and and sell yourself ultimately um is even harder now just because everyone is so oversaturated with applications in every almost every field really I mean in college you know there's everyone's overqualified medical school for sure everyone's overqualified. And then when you talk about residency, the same thing all over again, there's too many, too many uh, applicants, not enough spots. And so you have to find a way to, to make yourself stand out. And a lot of those things that make you stand out are those things that you might be afraid to talk about. um, Or you might be worried that might make you make them not like you and not want to take you. Um, And so you have to balance the, that you know desire to be liked by everyone and to be a a, what you might call a good applicant um, with the things that will make you stand out and make programs maybe less programs interested in you but maybe it will make them more interested in you and so i guess figuring out that balance is something i'm still working on um, but hopefully hopefully it will prove fruitful in the end
0: (laughs) the concept of match day really stresses me out um, even though I'm not, I'm so far from that process, I still follow along with it on Twitter. So I really hope that turns out great for you. Um, and I'd love to like check it and just see where you at, you're at and hopefully it's, it goes
2: well. One of the great things about urology is, is that it's an early match. Actually, we find out in February. Um, and so we get a whole month on everyone else, <laughs> uh, which is really nice, um, for, uh, One, it's not this prolonged interview process. Pretty much all of our interviews are condensed in the same month. Um, We, the urology, released all of their interview um, decisions all on the same day, as opposed to other specialties in which you know it can be this really prolonged process for several months. Um, And then we get an early decision as well. Um, So it's really a pretty shortened cycle um, compared to other specialties, which is stressful in the moment, but I'm sure I will be grateful for longer. Um, and so that's really great uh and i'm 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 very excited for match day it's uh it's been a long time <laughs> uh but yeah it's a it's a very stressful time for a lot of students, particularly when we talk about students that don't match um or who match maybe at a program that was pretty far down on their list um especially now with covid and that really impacting how programs make decisions um i think is It is a difficult time for sure.
0: Did you only apply to programs that you would actually attend?
2: Being a urologist is just very important to me. as something I really want to do. And so I'm willing to go to a program that maybe isn't in my top 10 (laughs) um, uh, or has maybe some red flags, um, depending on the red flag. Uh, And I didn't apply to programs where I did not see myself ultimately going to. Um, But I think I applied pretty broadly because the goal of being a urologist to me was more important than maybe going to, you know, only the best residency program that I could possibly get into. Um, And so that was sort of as I was sort of uh, deciding which programs to apply to, I just asked myself very genuinely, is being a urologist, like, would I rather just be a urologist and go to this program or would I rather do something else and not go to this program? Um, And so that's kind of how I weeded out certain programs. Um, I will say, though, because urology is such a small field, um, pretty much any program is going to be a pretty good program. Um, And so there's only very few where I would be like, I absolutely would rather not be a urologist than go to this program. Um, So that's that was kind of my my decision making process.
0: Just to be sure, you're not from Long Island, right?
2: No. (laughs) Okay,
0: good. Because the last few times that we've interviewed folks are from Long Island, and I just realized we never got to ask you where you're from.
2: I'm from Phoenix. Um, I grew up in Phoenix, and then I went to uh, New York City for college and grad school. I attended Yeshiva University um, and then NYU for grad school, and then I came back to Arizona for medical school.
0: I saw a meme yesterday that went, um, people in America will say that they go to undergrad in New York, they go to California for grad school, and then they go to the Midwest for whatever else there is, um, and then Texas for their job. And I thought it was really funny because they were like, how do people meet, move so often? Um, and honestly, like when I thought about, I think when I was younger, I used to think about, um, med school interview processes as like, you just take a bunch of fights you know, for a full week or something like that, because I knew people who um, they were flying out for their interviews, and now I feel like resident hearing people talk about residency very much sounds like just going all over the place within a very short span, so it's, it's interesting to think about, like, uprooting your whole life, I think, to go pursue, like, your career, but ultimately, I, can, I think it comes down to what you said about winning those pros and cons, and if it's something that you really want to do, then you will do it by any means necessary.
2: Yeah, I think with COVID, obviously, everything's been virtual. And so interviews have been all virtual. Um, And so there's less traveling in fourth year, which is great from a financial standpoint. Um, It's a little discouraging from, you know, the standpoint of being able to actually see what these programs are like, um, because they can certainly, it's a lot easier to alter certain aspects of your program when all you're doing is just sort of presenting it in a Zoom session, um, as opposed to if I was physically walking through the halls of the hospital, I'd be able to see several things about the hospital. Um, And so that's kind of that frustrating side of things. Um, And then also just the knowledge that I could end up literally anywhere next year. And so I could be moving down the street, I could be moving across the country, I don't know. Um, And so that's kind of, and it's not like I'll have options at that point. Um, cause with the match you get, you get one spot. So it's kind of, it will just be decided for me, which is very, uh, very stressful. Um, it's exciting, but it's stressful.
1: I've always wondered, like, cause I have a couple of friends who are going into medicine and are like sort of at the beginnings of the process. And it's such a long, like arduous process. Was there, did you ever see yourself in like any other career or like, were you like, nope, this is it?
2: I actually uh, considered philosophy for a while. I um I got my master's in bioethics, um and I really loved that. But I think it just sort of reaffirmed for me that I did want to practice medicine. I did sort of want to be on the front lines of these ethical issues as opposed to pontificating about them behind a desk. Um, and so I had like a brief a brief detour, uh, but but came back to it just because I mean, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like being able to take care of patients. Um. And in you know more ways than just providing their basic medical care, um, I think that it's a real privilege, and it's for the people who who really want to do it. Um, it's worth all of the stress and all of the the long the long haul of of medical school, residency, fellowship, and then you know finally getting to that attending job. Um, I think it's worth all of that.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate you um, being busy with your residency apps, but making time for us too.
2: Thank you so much. It was really an honor to, to be here. Um, and I really enjoyed talking with you guys. Bye. Bye.
1: everyone, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our conversation with Sammy. This is the part of the episode where we kind of like to reflect on our conversation with our guests, and we're joined by our interns, Alia and Sophia.
3: So uh, I think I'm, I'm 21 years old, and I am a senior in my undergrad, and I still don't think that I am fully committing to med school. And I know, I know it's like some people when they're on their second year of college or third year of college, they're already preparing for like the MCAT, the, um, the interviews and all that because I know it's very nerve-wracking. And I've always thought that if you want to be a doctor, you would know it instantly since like probably high school. You'd already be set into going to med school and that... Um, just, it's just, you feel that there's nothing else for you. But um, it was interesting for me because Sammy mentioned that she wasn't, both of her, like, um, when she was in college, she decided to be, I mean, she decided to go pursue a master's in bioethics. And until then, she was just coursing through, I guess. But um, she didn't actually, like, commit to med school until she was in her master's degree and I thought that was very interesting because I'm also in the same boat I I want to pursue med I want to be a doctor but that man that's 10 years of your life I mean i already like did this the first four but that's another six years that I'm really not sure if I'm ready for I'm gonna come out of school in like I'm already 32 32 no, knows? Probably just not just great and unmarried and have no kids and <laughs> so no. But it's true though. Like if you're, I think med school takes a lot of out of your life, and so it's very much like marriage. Marriage, and sometimes it lasts
4: longer than marriage. I had an internship at a medical college for a while, and one thing that like my supervisor was telling like another med student like in front of me basically was like. You calm down, like, you're gonna end up getting married, you're gonna have three kids, you just need to, like, ride the wave out, like, your life is, like, I don't know, it's really hard because, like, I also, like, plan my life a lot, I talked about this in, like, a past interview or reflection as well, but you do plan your life out and you think that oh my god like yeah I'm gonna graduate like med school and I'm 30 or like 29 or whatever it is and like then my life's over but like hello you're only 30 like the average age for a person to die is like 82 you have 52 more years to like this vibe you know what I mean and like I don't know if it is hard to go into medicine though because it's a big commitment and I I also like get scared I'm like can I do it can I not do it but um I don't know, I think if you're, like, if that's what you really want to do, and you decide eventually that, that is what you want to do, you'll be happy with that choice, and it's not necessarily that you, do, you can't, like, find love in med school, I'm sure you can, it's happened to people, like, it can kind of happen at the same time, it doesn't have to be, like, one or the other, you know? Like, med school, you talked about how hard it was, and you kind of, like, Sophia, you didn't, like, didn't, don't really know, like, if you're willing or whatever to, like, spend that much that I'm like 10 more years of your life doing it but I think a lot some of it could also be like imposter syndrome like in the beginning of the interview Sammy talked about well Sammy was asking oh did you think you were gonna be this big of a like a influence did you think you were gonna have this big of an influence on the lgbtq community at her school and she was like no like she didn't really think that and she never went in with this idea or this idea that she was going to be such a big influence and she she said that she didn't think she deserved to be the face of the lgbtq program at her school and that's so relatable because like it's imposter syndrome right like clearly she's shown like hey like this is my work. She should put in hard work. She's done everything. And yet, like, her mind is still like, Oh, you don't deserve to be where you are. And that's very relatable to me. Cause it's like, like, I'm pre-med. I've like literally wanted to be a doctor since I was 12 years old. And still, like, I'm 21. I'm like here about to apply soon, hopefully. And it's like, my mind is still like, oh, like, you can't do it. And it's kind of a battle because you have to battle your thoughts, even when there's scientific evidence that you can do it because, like, you've made it this far, you know? Like, I made it this far, I guess. This
0: is a really quick shout-out to our editor, Jameson, because even though I'm sick, I'm sure this audio will still come out dope. Anyway, so one thing that really resonated with me from both the interview and what you both just said, um, I kind of... The thing that was most intimidating to me in talking with medical students, at least from, you know, different organizations and guest speakers, is that oftentimes medical students will have a one story or one defining moment in which they decide, this is it for me. And I can't say it was ever one moment. I mean, yeah, there have been, there's been moments that have stood out, but it was never just one thing. And that's something that really scared me because I was like, okay, so I haven't had that I mean, I know I want to become a doctor. I can list a bunch of reasons why, but it hasn't just been because um, of one thing. So that really stressed me out for my personal statement because I was like, there's so many different things. How do you talk about that? And again, I think this is something that we discussed in the last reflection, but at the end of the day, it comes down to what will I contribute to medicine. And I feel like that's exactly what Sammy did in the sense that she saw that there was a community there that was worth, I guess, fostering and she created this organization as a means of um kind of creating a sense of community and I think that medical students to follow and even just undergraduate students like herself who are looking to apply um that really means a lot to me to know that the folks who are ahead who are in these like positions are doing their best to take care of you know future generations like ours
3: yeah for real though um when she Spearheaded that program at her school for the LGBTQ community. She, I, I, hope she realized that she made a very big change in that school. Cause who knows? Like fifteen years from now, that community is gonna be so much bigger, so much more colorful, and that it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for her. That that community would like that community wouldn't have found itself or like people um, from the community wouldn't have been like interacting with each other if it was if it wasn't her for
1: for her effort. I think like touching on the point that Zarya brought up about thinking about like what when someone's applying to med school about having to consider like what they can contribute to medicine. I thought it was really or like in the case of Sammy it it almost like, when she decided to kind of spearhead the organization, it didn't really start with her, obviously, like, from, like, her wanting to be, like, an advocate necessarily, right? She was going through this experience of of coming out and she wanted to find, um, like, a sense of community. So sometimes the ways in which you end up contributing also end up, like, feeding you and contributing back to you. And I think it's, like, those sort of, like, win-win situations almost that are, like... the the most inspiring ones where you take something that you're looking for and oftentimes when you're looking for it, there's also like a bunch of other people that are looking for it. And so the initiative that Sammy ended up taking as Sophia, as you said, is going to end up benefiting so many people right now and in the future. So I think that's a a really nice point to remember. So I think on that note, Sammy can definitely talk to people and we really, really enjoyed um, having this conversation with her and we hope you guys did too um as usual take care of yourselves and we'll see you in the next one bye everyone bye bye
0: read the transcript for this episode at queerdiagnosis.com. query diagnosis is
4: alia sayad jessica pathmanathan
1: H.E. Liang,
4: Lara Castadeda,
2: Serena McDaniel,
1: Sophia Peralta,
4: Jameson Coleman,
0: Shrita Miriboyna, and Mizaria Sheikh. Music is composed and provided by Kara Dugan and Adam Fredette. This podcast is supported by listeners like yourself. Our Patreon is patreon.com backslash query diagnosis. Write and subscribe queer diagnosis wherever you like to listen.